Welcome back to another episode of the Heads and Tails Podcast. We're spicing things up a little bit over the next four weeks as the hot summer training camps start. In collaboration with the Corey Stringer Institute, a.k.a. KSI, at the University of Connecticut, we are bringing you a four-part educational series on exertional heat stroke and preventing sudden death in sports. In August of 2001, Corey Stringer, a Pro Bowl offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings, passed away due to exertional heat stroke. Since the time of Corey's death, his wife, Kelsey, worked tirelessly to develop an Exertional Heat Stroke Prevention Institute to honor her husband's legacy. To that end, she joined forces with Exertional Heat Stroke expert Dr. Douglas Casa at the University of Connecticut to make this dream a reality, and the institute came into fruition in April of 2010. The mission of the Corey Stringer Institute is to provide research, education, advocacy, and consultation to maximize performance, optimize safety, and prevent sudden death for the athlete, soldier, and laborer, which is directly in line with the mission of this podcast. KSI serves the needs of active individuals and athletes at all levels, youth, high school, college, professional, people who are physically active, recreational athletes, and those who supervise and care for these individuals, such as athletic trainers and coaches and parents. Components of these services include consultations, advocacy, education, research, athlete testing, and mass market outreach, such as this podcast. This is a Heads and Tails podcast on steroids. We start off this episode by talking with KSI's CEO, Dr. Douglas Casa, whose passion for the study of exertional heat stroke started in 1985 when he suffered an exertional heat stroke while running a 10K race. Dr. Casa provides us with some background on the Corey Stringer Institute, shares his tale of exertional heat stroke, teaches us about the signs and symptoms and appropriate treatment of exertional heat stroke. And lastly, he shares the story of former Towson football player Gavin Klass, who nearly lost his life to exertional heat stroke and worked with the KSI staff to try to get back to the field. We also hear from Gavin in a separate interview to learn about the obstacles he faced and what his transition to life after sports was like. Now, without further ado, let's meet KSI CEO, Dr. Douglas Casa. This is Kevin Som, you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. Um, so let's just start off by talking about what sports you played growing up and kind of how your athletic career started. Um, had unique opportunities to play a lot of sports growing up. I grew up uh, on Long Island and uh, played football from when I was, not that you could tell that from the size of me but from when <laughs> i was five to 12 i played football in the fall and i played soccer every spring okay and was even in bowling leagues with my um through the summer we were in racquetball leagues in the winter time um uh, then eventually got more into track and field and and uh cross country in high school and then i was a track and field athlete and a cross country athlete through college and then uh you know, still do that actively now. So you played a lot of sports. Do you think that there's a benefit to playing multiple sports or do you think that, you know, re in recent times, more athletes are, you know, kind of focusing on um, one sport and there's some controversy over whether that's a good or bad thing. So do you think that your, you know, diverse sports participation uh, is, you know, it, did that help your athletic career? So that's a, a great point because I have three active kids right now who are like 10, 11, and 12, and they get advice from some coaches to stick with just one sport at an early age. Right. So I think it's a, one of the worst things you could ever do to a youth athlete is have them 
um, focus on a single sport at a young age. Coming from um, an athletic trainer. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a lot of reasons why not just, um, I, I think the, the injuries, the overuse injuries, um, but I think one of the big things is just the mental burnout. You know, a kid starts playing one sport at age nine or 10 and, and when they are 18 years old and about to leave for college, um, they they might not be as excited about playing that sport because that's all they've done for 365 days a year for 10 years where right. when you have kids who play a sport, uh, a few different sports that, you know, they seem to always be excited um, to come back to that sport. And I know there's a time you need to focus, but I don't want to see any kids that are eight, nine, 10 year, years old focusing on a particular sport. And I think we're better off if they start focusing when they're 14 or 15. All right. Thank you for the, mm-hmm. the advice. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite sports memory from your athletic career? Favorite sports memory? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I have a, a few of them. I'd probably say uh, um, qualify. I mean, the, the highlight for me was qualifying for the Empire State Games for me, um, which is like the Olympic style um, 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 sports festival that they have in New York. So I had tried out, you know, after my ninth grade year, after my 10th grade year. And the last time I could try out was after my 11th grade year before I'd be a high school grad. And I, I qualified for the Long Island region in the, the 10K race for track and field. That's probably one of my, my biggest highlights. What was what kind of feelings and emotions did you have when you accomplished that goal? Well, I'd been working at it for a few years. So the emotions were tremendous. And I think only my, my mom really thought I was ever going to accomplish the goal. Other people thought I was crazy to think I could be one of the top two on Long Island to, um, to make the Empire State Games. But um, it was just a very rewarding feeling knowing when you worked at something for a few years to, to see it come to fruition. Awesome. Uh, what injuries did you suffer from during your sports career prior to the exertional heat stroke that you, you suffered from, which we'll get to? Um, I think in high school, I you know probably had the typical injuries. I mean, you have some um, the, the, the overuse injuries you might get as a runner. Um, I was fortunate to not really ever have any kind of severe injuries. Um, musculoskeletal or, or otherwise. Um, but I, I would just say that the typical run of the mill kind of injuries. How did you address those injuries as you went? Like as you know, you weren't an athletic trainer at that point, you didn't have that kind of education on rehab and being patient with things. So do you remember, you know, how you kind of worked through that? Did you try to push through it? And do you like, do you regret something that you did or? It's a good question. Uh, yeah, we didn't have an athletic trainer at my high school, which would have certainly been helpful. Um, so I, I, a lot of it was, um, you know, you kind of had to learn on the fly, you know, you know, I realized quickly as a runner that anytime you really had a, like a legitimate injury, anytime you tried to push through it, it was just going to make it much longer for your recovery. Um, so I think I got smart early on that a, a couple of days of rest or, 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 um, taking a step back, um, in terms of intensity or, or volume, um, allowed me to get back a lot faster. Um, so it was a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a learning curve, but I think I, I learned it pretty fast that it's allowed me to still compete up to this time at age 47 as a runner. So you're still doing it. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. It's good to hear. Uh, so what ultimately sparked your interest in athletic training? And I think I have an idea of what it was. Um, so if you want to tell your story of your exertional heat stroke and kind of how that um, may, might have led to your interest in athletic training. Sure. Yeah. So in um, late June of 1985, um, I was just finished my junior year and I was um, going to be starting my senior year in a couple months. And it was the last time I could try and qualify for the Empire State Games um, in the high school division. And it was the 10K race. Um, and I had um, I tied for first place in the qualifiers um, in that race. And it allowed me to um, make the finals, which were going to be in Buffalo in August of 1985. Um, and when that race took place, it was during a heat wave. 
um, and it was um, extremely hot and they had um, the lack of wisdom that they, they had the race started about noontime. Which uh, is like peak. Exactly. Yeah. Middle of the day. It was a black track, so it was absorbing a ton of heat. And it's a 25-lap race. There was no hydration allowed during the race at that time. Um, and it was just it, a really... Was there a reason for that or... Just the rules at the time that no track races like had any assistance. Um, they've changed that since then, even up to the highest levels now. You know, you, you they have water during 10K races. Okay. Um, but they, um, um, so I, I was running basically the race of my life and I was, um, 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 had a, a chance of a, of a medal going into the last lap and was running probably my, my best time, my personal best. Um, and on the final lap, so 25th lap with a half a lap to go, I collapsed, um, got back up immediately. Cause I was thinking of that. I could, you know, you know, have this successful race and successful finish. Um, and then I went around the last turn and on the last straightaway, I collapsed again, um, and I didn't wake up for um, at least four or five hours later. I was in a coma, and I'd suffered from an exertional heat stroke. So, like, when you say you collapsed and then got back up, like, what were you feeling? Like, were your legs, like, giving out? Like, you had yeah. no control of your body? Like, what? That's what? a great feeling. I don't have, like, sh- strong memories of all this taking place. Right. Some of it was recounted to me from my high school cross-country coach who was actually in the audience at that time. Um, but I, I, I remember feeling awesome going into the last lap. I was basically running the race of my life. I was running a very good time. I didn't feel anything horrible. I literally, when I collapsed that first time, it was like almost like the first indication that something was wrong. Right. But I wasn't unconscious or anything. I just kind of almost like in a, like a trip stumbled. It wasn't a trip or a stumble, but it was just like, boom, it like kind of woke me up and I got right back up. Um, but clearly my body was, you know, on the Telling point of, of the brink of something very dangerous. And I literally made it just another hundred meters. And then I, I collapsed again. And this time there was, n- there was no getting back up. And thankfully an athletic trainer was, was with me within one minute or maybe even 30 seconds of collapsing. So the, te- it was a 10 K race. You mm-hmm. said, is that around a track? Yeah. So, it was okay. So at least it wasn't like in the woods, right? No, so correct. Not like a cross country yeah, race, yeah, that, or race, a road yeah. race where you'd be out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And who's um, to say who's near you at that exactly, point in time? Yeah. So this was 25 very boring, grueling laps on a track. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least you had the athletic trainer there. So yes. after that, did you know for a fact that you wanted to be an athletic trainer or not? It didn't like at that point, I had an interest in biology and medicine before I ever had that heat okay. stroke. So there was certainly a big interest. It was one of the things I was thinking about for college um, and, and what I was looking at in the colleges I was looking for. Um, but after that, it certainly galvanized my interest specifically in sports medicine, which I don't think I really realized that that was a whole field onto itself. Okay. And started to just independently try and learn more about this particular topic. But that, that took some time to evolve. It didn't like happen right away. Um, I was a biology major as an undergrad um, and then really didn't dive into sports medicine until I did my master's at the University of Florida. Okay, awesome. Gator. Yes. I'm a big Tebow fan, so. There you go. Yeah. Uh, before we transition into the Corey Stringer Institute and how you got involved w- with this, um, I want to go back to the first time you collapsed during that race. Do you remember what was going through your head of, like, why I need to get up? Like, you, I think you kind of alluded to, like, you knew something was wrong because you kind of lost control there like what in your head told you to get back up and try to keep running was it i mean i I think the biggest thing was is i'm really close to the finish line i mean i've just run for 30 minutes right and i only have like another 40 seconds to go so it'd be a shame to not finish this thing yeah um i I honestly at at that point i don't think i thought it was something serious when i first collapsed 
Um, so I, it's hard to say specifically because my memories aren't completely right, strong. Right, right. I don't have a ton of memories of that last lap. So what did the athletic trainer do to kind of save you, essentially? Well, thankfully, the athletic trainer was with me immediately, recognized it was heat stroke right away, and began cooling me on site. Um, they did have an ambulance on site as well. Um, and um, he got me started cooling, got me in the ambulance right away. They continued cooling during transport. Um, and when I got to the hospital, which was um, thankfully only like five minutes away, um, soon after getting there, within five or ten minutes of getting there, they also were aggressively cooling me um, in an ice tub. Um, so I, d I didn't have um, that many minutes of being extremely hyperthermic. So right. that was probably the, saved, the yeah. big save my organs from uh, having that that kind of severe damage and we're gonna hear about a story in a little bit with uh, a guy named gavin class that you worked with yeah so it's a different outcome there oh yeah so. uh what was your transition to life after sports like um so that yeah so i mean for a couple of weeks i was completely exhausted and just like even like walking to the fridge was like tiring right um so it took me a couple of weeks to kind of get my energy back like I said, I was very lucky and thankful um, that I didn't have any long-term complications from the heat stroke in terms of, you know, real medical issues or conditions that I had to deal with. So it was more getting my heat acclimatization back, my fitness back, um, and, you know, really resting. Um, but I ended up having a very successful, so that was August 8th. So I had a very successful senior fall um, cross-country season. So it really so, didn't limit you. No, so I was able to get back. Um, it, it took me out, I'd say, for a couple of weeks, but I was in such good shape when it happened that I was able to bounce back pretty quickly. Pretty quick, yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. It seems like you kind of lucked out, kind of like I lucked out yes. uh, in terms of how bad it, it could have been. Um, okay, so can you give us some background on the Corey Stringer Institute? Just, you know, I know who Corey Stringer is, but people listening might not know who sure. he is. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. So Corey Stringer was a, an awesome offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings. He was a um, all pro um, player. He was a former all American at Ohio, Ohio State, State University. Right? Yeah. Read that. So he, um, um, in the the summer of 2001, when he was, um, when he was, came to training camp, this was um, his fourth season. Then? I think it was the start of his fifth season. Start of his yeah. fifth. Okay. So it was um, late July. Um, and Minnesota was undergoing just a brutal heat wave. In fact, it's probably the worst heat wave in recorded history for Minnesota. Um, like temperatures over 100 degrees, um, successive days of brutal heat. Um, well, they had the first day of practice. Um, they didn't really make any modifications to practice, even though it was brutally hot. And they had like a two-a-day, and it was just an exhausting day. Um, and he, you know, suffered probably heat exhaustion that day and was not feeling well, wasn't feeling well in the evening, was probably likely very dehydrated and, and tired, um, was, was um, that during the practice on the first day was vomiting at practice, um, nauseous, obviously. So th those are symptoms of heat exhaustion? So not, not necessarily, but he didn't have a heat stroke the first day. There wasn't like any collapse or like um, CNS dysfunction. Right. It was just... Um, just the heat really just completely like kind of knocked him out physically. Okay. So you would uh, consider that something called heat exhaustion. It's a heat exhaustion. Yeah. So heat exhaustion, heat stroke, exertional heat stroke are two different medical conditions. Okay. So you, you can't die from heat exhaustion it's, and heat exhaustion is not an issue of like um, overheating. Right. All right. So that was all day one, but then on day two, once again, it's still really hot out in the morning practice. I, I I'm just guessing here, but I'm, I'm thinking he probably really wanted to prove himself after the first day didn't go well. Right. Thinking that like he was not in shape or whatever. Correct. And, and there was on the front page of the, the newspaper, um, that morning, I believe Tuesday morning, um, 
was a picture of him throwing up on the cover of the paper. So he saw that paper before going out to practice that day. Right. That from, all, from day one. So that it's like a toughness thing. Like exactly. the whole reason why I didn't say that my head hurt me was because I wanted to be tough. And right. And you don't want other people to you know, to question that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so that might have been a motivator for him. So he worked his butt off again, like he always did at practice on on Tuesday morning. Um, but this time it was a, a much worse outcome. And this time, um, towards the end of practice, his body was getting dangerously hot, really hot. And he, um, suffered an exertional heat stroke. Um, and unfortunately he was not aggressively cooled, um, for a very long period of time. In fact, um, like almost like an hour and a half later, he was still um, like in the 108, 109 degree range at the hospital. Um, because he was not transported immediately. Um, if, if, if he was going to be cooled aggressively on site, it's fine to not be transported. Okay. But he was not cooled aggressively on site, but they just kept him in the trailer. Um, and then he was transported later. Do you know why? He, did they just not recognize that it was heat stroke? My or? guess is that they thought it was a heat exhaustion. Okay. That would be my, my best guess. Um, but unfortunately, you see, the thing is with exertion heat stroke is, is people kind of assume that you have to be unconscious or like in a coma when you have right. heat stroke. But a lot of people are not unconscious. And a lot of people can still even have some somewhat normal cognitive function, meaning they could have a potentially a small conversation or, right. um, so I guess part of the time he was in the fetal position in the trailer near the field, but he was never completely unconscious. Um, and he, you know, was, I think maybe able to respond in a couple word kind of responses um, right. to the athletic trainer that was there. Um, and they maybe just put a towel on his back and, and some very small kinds of things, but obviously he was just grossly hyperthermic at this time. And, um, a lot of minutes were lost at this time. And, just in the span of 15 hours after that happened, he died in the middle of the night. When when Tuesday pushed into Wednesday, early Wednesday morning, he passed away. Wow. I mean, there's definitely athletic trainers that were on site there, and it's kind of crazy to – I mean, you probably think that these, like, NFL athletes are, like, the top athletes, you know, some of the top athletes in the world, and then they, they'd be able to handle these kind of conditions and stuff like that. So you can kind of see how they might take it on the easier side or less aggressive side. Um but this exertional exhaustion or um, heat exhaustion versus exertional heat stroke, it's interesting to me. It's like it's the fine line of like, do you treat heat exhaustion the same way as you would treat exertional heat stroke so that's a, that's a in question. terms of like trying to cool the athlete down? Yeah. If you if you thought someone was suffering a heat stroke, it's always better to assume the worst. Right. You know, because cooling a heat exhaustion person, there'd be no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. So always assume the worst and you need to get a rectal temperature. Um, obviously assessing, assessing cognitive function, this all has to be done within a few minutes. And if, if someone is like above 105 degrees, um, you assume it's obviously a heat stroke at that point, you aggressively start cooling them down. Um, so, um, the thing is with heat stroke and obviously the really painful thing with the Corey Stringer's case is that, um, heat stroke is 100% survivable. Um, when your temperature is brought under 104 within 30 minutes. Okay. Um, and that is over 2,000 cases we've tracked between athletics, military, and laborers. Um, so it literally, up to this point, you, you can't die if you're cooled aggressively right. from what we know so far. Um, and we actually just published a paper recently of 274 heat strokes we've treated um, where we had a lot of specific data on it was 100% survival with no known long-term complications when people got rectal temperature done right away and they were put in a cold water immersion bath you know within 10 minutes of collapse okay so it's important to have ice and cold like hot or cold tubs like yeah so we recommend that at every high school 
football field in America in August, and, and almost every college does now, and every NFL team does. I mean, and even like a youth practice, like how much would it cost you to buy a tub and fill it with water and get a bag of ice, you know, like... Yeah, and, and yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's tough to say if like every youth field in America, if it's just one team practicing, if there's a field that has like 10 fields, Multiple, yeah. and that might make more sense. But the, the key point is, is for parents, coaches, and athletes to understand the key thing is getting your temperature down as fast as possible. So even if you don't have a tub, you certainly could have a big, huge cooler there filled with 15 towels, ice, and water. Right. Every field can have that. Yeah. And you take all their equipment off, and then you just put freezing cold towels over their entire body. And then, you know, every minute or two, you know, exchange it back in the cooler and reintroduce freezing cold water again on the skin surface. And you could cool them down quite effectively with that matter. It's not quite as fast as cold water immersion, but you're still going to save the person's life if you're able to start that right away. Right. Um, what was I going to say? So what are the common symptoms of exertional heat stroke? So like that an athlete would exude and a trigger should go off in your head and be like this kid or athlete or guy girl whatever um needs to cool down and uh, like what kind of symptoms were you having like what what puts an athlete at risk like why did you suffer from heat stroke that day was it you didn't drink enough water or just because of the the weather or a culmination of a lot of things so that's a lot of questions. So I'm going to splice those. Yeah, out. sorry about that. That's okay. So the first was mentioning things like uh, signs and symptoms or early warning signs. So the unique thing about exertional heat stroke is about 50% of the cases of heat stroke don't have any prodromal signs and symptoms, meaning that you don't necessarily see things before it takes place. So the first indication there's a problem might be the person collapsed unconscious in front of you. So that was the case with me in right. my heat stroke. I really had no, I mean, I was hot, but it was hot outside and I'm running really hard. I was, so I've been hot that, in millions yeah. of races. Yeah. Um, but things they might be able to know that would be great educators for athletes and parents and coaches is things like um, people have headache, dizziness, lightheadedness, nausea, vomiting. Um, things are a lot harder than they usually are. Like if you're always exercising 90 degree weather and you're used to this intensity and it feels this way, if it feels just a lot harder than usual, that might be a warning sign that, that something is a little more challenging. And then obviously for the not this isn't going to help the athlete themselves, but other people. Like if someone has is struggling cognitively at all, like concentrating in practice, like they're not following the directions, they're slow to respond, they're um, obviously unconscious or uh, things like that. Any kind of CNS dysfunction, central nervous system dysfunction, um, during intense exercise in the heat, you should definitely be thinking, you know, cardiac issue or heat stroke issue. The last point was um, um, what causes someone to have the heat stroke, like on that given day, you said I was I dehydrated, right? You know, so there's a lot of things. I mean, the, the biggest factors that drive your body temperature up during activity um, are the environmental conditions, the intensity of the activity, the amount of equipment or clothing you have to have on, your hydration status, um, if you're heat acclimatized or not, um, and then maybe some individual factors like maybe supplements or medications you may be taking. Okay. So those six items are the things that you know when the um when you know kind of the perfect storm when certain things come together maybe really intense a lot of equipment they're not heat acclimatized and it's really hot out those you know it's it's many of those factors coming together right and that's like a lot of the stories that i've read on the ksi website are with offensive linemen you know you have the hot summer you got a lot of equipment you got big guys um and that was going to be one of my other questions is like 
does the size of the athlete does that matter like do you see a trend in it's a lot of the bigger guys that that tend to get it but you said like you're in your own case that wasn't necessarily true yes yeah, so that's a good question so in football yes the offensive and defensive linemen um, by far um, seem to have the most heat strokes maybe 75 to 80 percent of them are happening in the bigger linemen so i definitely think it's okay. a risk, risk factor in the sport of football um running is a little bit different because um it, the, the, in america the two sports that have the most heat strokes are, are ironically american football and distance running big two um, opposite yeah, ends exactly. of the spectrum yeah. and the, the reason is is that in distance running it's um the intensity where they're like, if you're trying to keep a certain pace or meet a certain goal during a workout or a race, and you're not heeding your body's warning signs that, you know, you're going too hard. And in a football practice, it usually happens when someone else is controlling the intensity or the pace. So like the coach is saying, okay, you're not going to have any breaks, um, or we're going to go this hard for this length of period of time. So even the football player may feel like crap, you know, during the workout, yeah. he can't necessarily make any modifications because it's being controlled by an external influence. Right. And it's tough to speak up and exactly. say like, so I'm yeah. sure you can relate to those You're tapping out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So how did the Corey Stringer Institute uh, kind of come about or mm -hmm. get created? And then how did you get involved and become the, the CEO? Sure. So in 2001, obviously when I, I, August 1st, when Corey passed away and the ensuing ended up almost being, I guess about 10 years, there was a lot of lawsuits that took place. Um, 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 emanated from um, Corey's widow, Kelsey, um, against the different entities um, that were certainly at fault. Right. So the team and um, the um, the athletic trainers or the physicians or the other people involved, because as was mentioned before, his, his death was 100% preventable. Um, so I assisted her during um, many of those lawsuits um, because of my expertise in exertional heat stroke. So her lawyers reached out to me to provide um, consulting advice during the, those those cases. Um, so after a long time, I mean, this is like seven or eight years, you know, developed a relationship um, with um, with Kelsey's lawyers, then showing that my expertise and kind of trust that I'm, I'm truly passionate about this area. Um, so that when um, Kelsey and her lawyers um, had the settlement, the final settlement with the NFL, um, the, the, those entities and the commissioner of the NFL, Commissioner Goodell, reached out to, to me here at UConn to see if we would have an interest in being... Um, the home of the lasting legacy of Corey. So you were um, already at UConn? Oh, yeah, I've been there. I got to New UConn in 1999 okay. as a professor. Um, they reached out um, in January of 2009, and he passed away in 01. So this is eight years after right, he passed away while, yeah. when, I, when I got the call about trying to have an institute like this. Um, and then and it was January of 09, um, and then through the winter and spring, I, I assessed if that this was something I thought was viable and, and if, if all the entities were really serious about this and if it wasn't just window dressing um, to, to right. have people see that something was being done, but was it going to be of substance? I made the commitment in summer of 09 and in the fall of 09, we had the massive planning meeting here on campus um, to make um, put all the things into motion. And then we opened our doors um, on um, April 23rd, 2010, and we're about six and a half years old now. Awesome. And what's the mission of the Corey Stringer Institute? Because I know that it's not just um, exertional heat stroke, you know, research. So what kind mm -hmm. of stuff do you guys do? So our global mission of KSI is to, to prevent sudden death um, in sport and physical activity um, and to allow people to, you know, perform at their best, you know, during these kind of extreme conditions. So we work a lot with um, athletes, soldiers, and laborers um, who have to, you know, do intense exercise um, um, and, you know, should certainly have the, the, the rights to have the 
um, safe either working or playing conditions right. um, and have the right parameters and policies and procedures in place um, that will protect them. Um, so the things we do are we do a lot of research, um, boots on the ground research, either be field testing um, out with teams and athletes and soldiers or down in our labs or other research just um, where we, you know, um, are in contact with, with schools or doing surveys or epidemiological kind of research. Um, we do a lot of education, whether it be through textbooks or CU courses or um, going to give presentations um, or the information we have at our website. Um, we also do a lot of um, policy change work where um, schools or districts or universities will um, invite us in um, and we'll review their policy and procedures and make recommendations to have them um, meet best practices. Awesome. We also do a lot of advocacy where we go and try to change policies, you know, in all the 50 states, work with the NCA closely, um, professional sports leagues. We work very closely with the military, especially the Army, Air Force, um, and Marines. And we work with, um, um, like I said, um, each of the 50 states each have a, a high school athletic association and they all set their own state policies for health and safety issues. So we work extremely closely with them and have had a lot of success with getting policies changed. And the last um, part of KSI, I'd say, is mass media outreach, where um, an organization like yourself and others that we try to use um, the different outlets that can get the right information out to you know, parents, athletes, coaches, and medical staff. That's a lot of work. Yeah. I can tell you guys are busy busy, around here. Is all the research done, you know, kind of in-house at University of Connecticut or is it, you know, based all over? It's, 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 the hub is here, but a lot of the data collection can happen in other places. Okay. Um, We have an extensive lab here in our facility here at Gamble Pavilion. um, And we, we have a nice um, working facility as well. Um, We have quite a staff here. We had um, 70 people work at KSI this past year. Um, 55 are volunteers and 15 paid staff. Awesome. Um, and the, the, the volunteers are, um, you know, students, undergrads at UConn that are just passionate about, you know, either sports medicine or um, keeping athletes safe or, or, or military issues or things like that. So they come to us and it's, it's great having an amazing resource of really smart, really motivated uh, people um, that can work at KSI. And our, most of our other staff are, um, you know, PhD students um, with me pursuing um, their doctorates, you know, in, in this area of sports medicine. Awesome. If any of those 70 people ever want to help someone with the podcast, I know a guy who could use some help. <laughs> there you go. Well, we can continue with other interviews even beyond today. Cause there's a lot of other medical issues we deal with on a regular basis. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. You want to start uh, talking about the Gavin class story? I know sure. this is an athlete that you've worked pretty closely with and there was an outside the lines report about his story mm-hmm. and he had a kind of a hard time getting cleared to, to play again after his exertional heat stroke. And he suffered from uh, a, a little bit more severe um, or had a little more severe repercussions than, mm-hmm. than you were, than you had. I mean, yeah. So Gavin class to me is one of the most, um, most important kind of educational cases that we could ever use to discuss kind of all the key issues related to exertional heat stroke. Um, because, um, I might have my, I'm going to try to get my dates precise here, but, um, it was August of 2013. Um, he suffered an exertional heat stroke at a a football practice at Towson state university in Baltimore, Maryland. And, um, to the credit of the medical staff there, they were, you know, prepared with immersion tubs. Um, and they recognized right away it was a heat stroke. Um, and they got his equipment off right away and started cooling him. But there's, you know, there's other elements to heat stroke care that, 
unfortunately, um, they did not have in place that, that, that could have enhanced Gavin's care. And one of the big things, as I mentioned earlier, is the concept of cool first, transport second. Okay. That concept is um, you want to have the right cooling, uh, aggressive cooling on site so you don't lose the valuable minutes. Because remember I mentioned you got to get under 104 degrees within 30 minutes of collapse. And you can't wait 10 minutes for an ambulance. Then they're on site for 10 minutes and 10 minutes back to the hospital. So and 10 minutes is, before the- Time is important. Yeah, yeah, time is survival, really. Yeah. So, things, so, so yeah. they got him in a tub within a few minutes, which was fantastic. But then when the ambulance arrived on site, um, they took him right out of the tub. And that was the mistake? Yeah, huge mistake because, unfortunately, he um, he was still in the 108, 109 range um, an hour later at the hospital where he could have been under 104 or 5 within 30 minutes at, at the field with the tubs they had set up. And, unfortunately, they didn't do a rectal temperature either on site which would have been great validation of why we need to continue cooling him in the tub right. and not take him out of the, the best modality for him at that time. So it shows you like this kind of four key steps if you're going to have help someone survive an exertional heat stroke. One is recognize it as quickly as possible, um, getting a, an accurate core body temperature assessment with a rectal thermometer, um, you, uh, cooling aggressively on site and using a cooling modality that has a very good cooling rate like cold water immersion. So those are the four key steps if you want to assure someone's survival. And it kind of shows the importance that you need all four of them in place because they had some of those in place. Um, but then, um, you know, unfortunately, his outcome um, was many years longer than it needed to be because if he was treated right, most people with heat stroke spend a max of one night in the hospital if they're treated correctly. And most people don't even spend any nights in the hospital if they're treated correctly. Right. So I'll take you kind of through this path now. So that was August of 13. Um, and the ensuing, oh gosh, um, you know, year after that took place, he had approximately 12 surgeries. Um, right, because he needed a liver transplant. Right? One of those was a liver transplant, but he had a lot of medical issues that he had to deal with because of the number. He was severely hypothermic for so long that a lot of his organs had very were very severely damaged. Um, so through the fall and winter of of thirteen into winter of fourteen, um, he just had you know was really in a sense kind of you know fighting for his life, especially the first month or so. But then. Um, you know, then he just was started this long, grueling recovery process. He um, seemed like an elite level athlete, just like based off of at least the outside of the lines report. Like, oh yeah, he looked like an impressive dude. Yeah, he's like six three, six four, yeah, two hundred and eighty yeah. pounds, and super Strong fit. Hell, he, yeah. he was at the best, his best in terms of all of his strength numbers. He was posting that summer, right, right before then. He was in great shape, um, and he was things were going very well for him. Um, so yeah, he had lost like, um, he lost like a hundred and a hundred pounds just from, you know, in that six months after, in terms of, of how this knocked him out, this particular condition. But then he came to us probably, um, in the ballpark of a, a year or maybe nine or 10 months after he had the heat stroke, um, to get a sense of, was there permanent damage, um, in terms of his ability to exercise in the heat? Um, what are his, his, you know, could he ultimately maybe bake it back to sport, play back, play football again, or, or just normal functioning again? Um, so his university, um, put him, um, um, got him to come visit us, um, which was a great move on their part. And the, the, um, the parents were obviously hugely supportive to try to have him, you know, around people who are experts with this particular, um, um, medical condition. Um, so then through the course of, I don't know, whatever it was, spring of 14, all the way through spring of 15, he made um, three visits to our campus here at the Corey Stringer Institute where we did extensive testing with him to assess his, um, his physiological ability to do um, exercise in the heat. Um, and initially he struggled, you know, because of one of a lack of fitness and, you know, he's not ready for the heat and, you know, maybe the lasting complication 
um, of the heat stroke. But then over the course of many visits um, and us um, also recommending things for him to be doing when he's not with us, and he was very diligent about doing all the things that we asked him to do, um, he ultimately got to the point that we could um, feel like he was, you know, 100%. He was ready to go. He was cleared for um, full return to intense exercise in the heat from our perspective in terms of him not necessarily being at any greater risk for having an exertional heat stroke. All right. So what kind of protocol do you put the like, an athlete like uh, Gavin through? Okay. So when they, when they come here, um, we obviously start low, start small. So we, we have some set protocols where people do like um, easy walking in the heat, um, up a grade, there's no equipment on. They're just like in a t-shirt and shorts. And we just see if their body can, you know, do the basics in terms of um, sweating and cooling itself. Because some people, after they have a heat stroke that was not treated properly, um, some people have long-term and some people have permanent complications of what we call exercise heat intolerance. They can never exercise in the heat again. So they're more prone to it happening again. Yeah, prone to a heat stroke, but also just they just can't even live and function in the heat. So some people who live in the South who've had a heat stroke that wasn't treated properly, they actually have to move to Northern climates. Um, because they just can't be in the heat. They right. just they they can't even function normally. They can't even walk in the heat. Yeah. So, um, so we wanted to get a sense of that. And so the first time we did it, he didn't do that well. Um, and we you know recommended some you know enhanced fitness, um, some some exercise in the heat, and you know certain things to try to get him in a better place. And then the second time he did much better. And then the third time he did even better. Um, and then we also increased the intensity and the kind of exercise we had him doing. Um, and ultimately, you know, we were able to feel confidently that he could return to football so you thought that he was fit to play so like what improved in his you know ability to exercise that made him fit to play yeah. just the the and regulation of temperature yeah so when and also when just to clarify when we decided that he we thought he was fit to play that had nothing to do with like his other medical issues like the, the liver transplant like the person who did that would have to decide if that person could safely play football again because we're not experts in that area right um, our assessment was simply, could he safely thermoregulate? Like, could, could his body, you know, safely control its body temperature during intense exercise in football, you know, like conditions? And so, yeah, so the thing we were looking for is during, you know, intense exercise in the heat, um, is he is his body temperature going up an appropriate amount? It's going to go up a little bit. That's normal. Um, but is, is making sure it's not going up to dangerous levels. Right. And we felt like he was in a, in a safe place. And there's also something very unique. Um, you may have heard of um, something called ingestible thermistors. That's kind of what I was getting at. I wanted yeah. to talk about that. Yeah, so there's these little, little, um, basically they look like a big multivitamin, and they um, send out radio waves. So you can ingest this pill like the night before practice, and it's then in your intestines in the morning. And um, it, they can give off radio waves that you can track someone's body temperature during activity. So we had a very easy way of just monitoring Gavin's temperature also during football practice, which was pretty handy. Without to have. constantly giving him a rectal thermometer. Exactly, exactly. So you wouldn't need a rectal thermometer. Although we told Gavin that if the pill's ever malfunctioning or if he had had a bowel movement and it wasn't there, we may need to do a rectal temperature and he's totally fine with that. He's used to doing the rectal thermometers here every time he came for testing. Right. Because obviously we have to monitor his temperature safely. But he, um, so he was totally fine with that, but it's a unique way. So ironically, when we, you know, recommended he go back to Towson, he would be the safest player on the field because he's the only person having yeah, his I mean, temperature monitored, monitored through yeah. the whole practice. Right. So we didn't have any worries that he'd ever be in a risk. And that's not too much trip. work for an athletic trainer to. No, it's quite simple. In fact, it's, um, it, it's not like you have to check it constantly. You would just check it every like 15 or 20 minutes during practice. It takes five seconds to get a reading and it's just something that's like the size of a cell phone. You can give an intern. 
Exactly. Anybody. It's very, very, very simple process. Anybody could handle it. And anybody would, I mean, you know, athlete, athletic trainers take care of diabetics on the field, you know, during their practices, asthmatics, people who have other medical conditions are still playing football. Right. Um, and certainly someone who has a history of heat stroke, who's recovered completely is certainly able to also, um, play football. Awesome. Do you think that the rectal thermometer or a temperature reading is part of the problem that leads to, uh, heat strokes going wrong, I guess, because it's kind of like a uncomfortable type situation for both the athlete and for the person who has to administer that. And so they try to avoid that and therefore don't, this is just going on in my head right now. That was uh, a great point. You, you're, you are, um, recapturing some of the biggest issues we're dealing with nationally right now, um, where you have, um, some principals, superintendents of school districts, athletic directors who are actually saying that like their athletic trainer, their medical person at their school cannot do a rectal temperature on their athlete because they're, because they're saying, because they're a minor. And obviously that's such a huge travesty that we're willing to potentially risk someone dying um, and, and provide inferior medical care because they're a minor. And in fact, you would think it'd be the opposite that you'd provide, you know, superior medical care because it's a minor. Um, but that's just some really, you know, gross errors in judgment than people who are, who are thinking this. I mean, you always think back to like, if you were had a female athlete and you needed to use an AED and you'd have to cut off their bra, you still right. would, you, you still would think, expose them. Yeah, you wouldn't even think of twice. Of course, about you'd it, still yeah. save their life and you'd deal with 10 seconds of exposure of their breasts, just like you deal with five seconds of exposing someone's, you know, um, backside area to do a rectal temperature. Um, but that's, that's one of the key, key ways of making sure you're dealing with a heat stroke and also knowing when to remove them from the tub because you need to, you need to track their temperature as it comes down. Right, right. Um, and so you have the, the thermistor stays in while you're cooling them and you track them during the whole time. Um, but thankfully we're making a lot of progress, you know, in the military, it's the gold standard to use rectal temperature. Um, it's not really a big issue in most situations and, it, and we're making a lot of progress. The pro level, it's not as big of a deal now and the college level, it's not a big deal. Um, but at the high school level was still some progress to be made, but we have a lot of success stories and some major, major areas now that it's just becoming um, the norm to have athletic trainers use rectal temperatures. All right. So what was the communication like between you guys and Gavin's athletic trainers or even not even just put Gavin's story aside. So when an athlete comes here who had heat stroke and they're trying to get back to their sport, what's your communication like with their athletic trainer in terms of actually getting them back on the field again. That's good. Yeah. So in the, in the proactive situations, the team physician and the athletic trainer from the school that sends us their athlete um, works very closely with us um, um, and respects, obviously, the unique expertise we have and the sheer volume of athletes we deal with who have heat stroke compared to the, the person who's sending us their athlete might be the only heat stroke they've dealt with in their career. Right. And for us, it's, you know, the, the 150th person that we've assisted with. Um, so, so trust what you're saying. Yeah. So, so we certainly have a lot of um, expertise and experience um, with, with working with them. And most of the team physicians, athletic trainers are, you know, superstars and they um, are very receptive to the feedback. Um, And we try to help integrate into their specific situations and try to provide advice for them to, um, to work back in and and within those specific circumstances. In Gavin's case, unfortunately, the team physician actually never reached out to us and um, we um, didn't have a lot of communication um, well, there seemed the like there was there. other drama there uh, that, yes. that was being dealt with. Yeah, so that was that was too bad. So I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. So why wasn't so Gavin never actually went back to playing, right? And it had a lot to do with just not being cleared by the Towson medical staff. Um, yeah, this was quite unfortunate. Um, 
so Gavin was, you know, um, just got just some really poor um, care and attention when it comes to his medical staff there at Towson. Um, the people didn't have a lot of expertise when it came to exertional heat stroke and did not reach out um, to people, either us or others, who do have expertise in this area to help guide Gavin um, and realize how he could still safely return to activity. Um, he was cleared by the people who did the liver transplant that he could go back to contact activity. Um, and we had made those recommendations and even made the recommendations of just monitoring him at practice and, you know, um, seeing if things could go well and allowing him to progress back um, in that manner. So he ultimately had to, the, the school ultimately said we were not going to clear him. And the bad thing for him was it was coming upon his senior year eligibility wise. Right. So he was um, losing time. Exactly. So he actually um, pursued legal action. And um, I went and actually testified on his behalf, you know, just to kind of um, reiterate the findings that we had here at KSI and at UConn um, to, to support his case. Um, and the initial um, court ruling in Baltimore, I don't know if it was the cir circuit court or um, whatever level, they overruled Towson and said that Gavin could return. Um, and, you know, based on particular uh, parameters of uh, – um, uh, what was it related to um, um, American with Disabilities Act that, you know, that the, the practice itself caused the injury and the football caused the injury and he had recovered and he should allowed, be allowed the opportunity to return to his work, um, which was, you know, playing the sport of football. Right. Um, so they ruled in that manner. But then Towson went to the Court of Appeals in Maryland, um, which said they would hear the case and that they had to rule, I believe, within three months of when they said they would hear it. Um, the problem, as you could imagine, this is now July of his senior year. And if the Court of Appeals says they have within three months that they could rule in late September. Which would be which, but pointless well, for him to hear anything because exactly. the season's basically now going to be done for him to be able to go back to even practice because he's now not allowed even to practice with his team. Um, so then they went to the U.S. Supreme Court to see if they could hear it faster um, because to not have to wait three months and the U.S. Supreme Court didn't hear the case. So then they had to wait for the appeals, which ultimately did end up coming out in September. And they supported the um, the ruling of the um, the appeals court saying that he was not um, – the appeals said, you know, he's the, the school is okay with keeping him out of activity and that the, the decision should come from the school. Now, I want to clarify this because obviously for all the people who would be listening to this, Obviously, we want team physicians making the decisions, you know, for the health and safety of their athletes right. because they're ultimately going to be the ones that know the best and um, should be able to make that final decision. And we don't want courts making decisions on when athletes are eligible. Um, what was only upsetting in this particular case was um, they didn't have the proper care for him initially. He suffered for two years because he didn't have the proper care. He's now fully recovered. And the people at the school didn't reach out to experts on this particular topic to give him at least the benefit of the doubt to give him a shot at practice. So, right. yeah, come out to practice. We have the ability to track your temperature. We'll just see yeah, how things go. Yeah, if it goes go. too high, then you're yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, then we're not going to do it. Or we're, we're going to let you just be the manager for the season. Right. But we're going to at least give you a chance. So um, so we, I was passionate about assisting him because I believe that um, um, he didn't have his um, due process was not allotted to him in this case. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm sure... I'd like, I'm curious to see what his transition to life after sports was after that whole ordeal. Ironically, that's funny that you say that because he's just um, um, competed and I believe won a couple events in the world um, in the transplant games. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, I didn't either until this, but obviously he had the liver transplant, so he's uh, he's very active um, um, and competing at that level. So he's very, very serious about you know being physically fit and 
Um, I believe he is even considering a master's degree in this field. Cool. I'm going to try to reach out to him and get his uh, his That's, opinion. That sounds good. Uh, all right. We're going to start to wrap up the interview. Uh, so what would you say to athletic directors who don't employ an athletic trainer or a youth league who doesn't employ an athletic trainer? Okay. Well, at the, at the high school level, um, at, at this point in time, if you don't have an athletic trainer, you're holding yourself up for massive liability issues. Um, and obviously just from the, um, just the, um, just from passionately caring about the health and safety of your student athletes, you would want to have the best for them. And you really need to have an athletic trainer there to make sure that um, you have one, have the proper policies and procedures in place. And two, you have the person who can implement them um, when push comes to shove. When it comes to um, preventing sudden death in sport, what you do in the first 10 minutes is really going to dictate if they live or die. Right. So, um, you know, whether it be a, a brain bleed, whether it be, um, as you are well aware, a heat stroke or a cardiac condition or exertional sickling, um, or asthma or other things like that, it's first five to 10 minutes, you got to make the right decisions if it's going to go on the right path or the wrong path. Um, so thankfully, the numbers are encouraging. We, we just actually did a massive study, I don't know if you're aware of, um, we called every single high school in America to see if they had an athletic trainer. How long did that take? About two and a half years. Um, over 20,000 schools, public and private, because um, we wanted to really get a sense of the landscape right now of sports medicine services at the high school level. Um, and we got some really interesting data. About 70% of the high schools in America have access to an athletic trainer right now, meaning they have an athletic trainer, um, you know, maybe just at games or at certain events. So they're Not at least, full-time, but... Yeah, they're at least realize the importance of an athletic trainer. Right. About half have a full-time athletic trainer. And about two-thirds have an athletic trainer there every afternoon and for games. So they might not be full-time, but they're still there every day from two to six yeah. um, for the key times when you would want them there. So that's encouraging that it's at two-thirds. But because the larger high schools are more likely to have an athletic trainer, we actually found 86% of the high school athletes in America have access to an athletic trainer. Because oh, the, the, the bigger schools, the bigger schools right. have them, percentage-wise, it's going to kick up your athlete numbers. Right. Um, so, so for, for us yeah. it's very encouraging and that's why when, based on your question, you just asked if you're a school right now that doesn't have an athletic trainer, you're now, it's not the norm, you know, to, to not have an athletic trainer. So you, people, you really have to substantiate that you're, you're paying 25 coaches at your school. You're paying for three people to take care of the, the 15 fields you have and you have 700 athletes and you have all their uniforms, all the travel, and you're spending a half a million to a million dollars in your athletics program, but you're not putting one dime in to the sports health side for those 700 athletes. Yeah, that's so. If you're listening to this, I think you know what what you should what your <laughs> next step should be. Um, all right. So, what's your favorite part about being an athletic trainer? My favorite part about what I do right now um, is, which is being an athletic trainer, being a professor here at the University of Connecticut, um, is the opportunity um, we get at KSI to make um, substantial changes on an extremely large scale. Um, so we know that when we change like a policy in Florida, we know that we're helping like literally millions of athletes That's the, second, right there, yeah. the second. So millions of athletes at that moment, but then it'll be a million athletes, you know, or, or you know, millions of athletes in the next 10 years right. that are impacted. So so it's it's humbling and it really makes you sleep really well at night that you know that you're able to have this kind of influence. But at the same time, you get frustrated when people don't make what you think are common sense changes, and that obviously keeps the passion going. Right. And I, I'm hoping that interviews like this will get the word out yes. and wake people up sometimes. Um, so what's your fondest memory of your time as being an athletic trainer, whether it's like helping a um, guy like Gavin or like what specific instance? I, for that, I have an easy answer. It would be um, August of 2015. Uh, I was in charge of triage at the Falmouth Road Race in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. 
um, and is a 12K race, the Falmouth Road Race, notorious for a lot of heat strokes. Um, and we had um, 100 people that needed to be cooled within 90 minutes. 42 of them had an exertional heat stroke. So what? we had 42 heat strokes within literally 90 minutes. And that's CNS dysfunction with um, temperatures over 105. Wow. And 100% of them survived. Um, and, you know, within 30 to 60 seconds, I had to decide, is it a heat exhaustion? Is it a heat stroke? Because we don't have, you know, we obviously had to decide. Don't have the resources. Exactly, yeah. to take care of them all. So that was, for me, my highlight. Awesome. Uh, you guys definitely know your stuff. Yeah. So what characteristics do athletes have that lead to the best recoveries from injury, whether it's exertional heat stroke or whether it's you broke your leg? Um, characteristics, I mean, I think one of the things is the, is the support structure that's around them. So do they have that athletic trainer at their high school that can help guide their, med uh, their medical care? Um, do they have a team physician that um, is through the AMSSM, which is the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, which is the, the leading organization for team physicians? Um, do they have, um, um, you know, obviously, it's, I think that supportive infrastructure is going to be key for them to, to return to their support. All right. Um, and lastly, what's your personal definition of perseverance? Okay, so you'll be interested to know that um, in the magazine you just got here in your folder, that the, the name of the magazine for KSI is called Pertinacity. Okay. Pertinacity is a word um, that means um, um, a relentless um, pursuit of a goal. Um, and that's that kind of pertinacity is what I like our, that. our staff at KSI kind of embodies that. Um, you know, we might be told by a state, we're not going to change the policy, we're not going to change it, but we'll find some other direction, some other way into the make system and make it happen. That's so cool. So, um, Dr. Casa, uh, thank you so much for taking time and sharing your knowledge about exertional heat stroke and sharing your own story. Um, and I, I really admire what you guys have going on over here at uh, the Corey Stringer Institute. All right, thank you so much for your time and helping to get the word out about the work we're doing. Thanks. Thank you. That was some incredible information given to us by Dr. Casa. Prior to this interview, I had no clue how to treat exertional heat stroke, but as long as we make sure to, number one, have quick recognition, number two, get an accurate core body temperature, which means getting comfortable being uncomfortable with a rectal thermometer, obviously easier said than done, and number three, have on-site cooling capabilities, specifically cold water immersion, with these steps, we can save an athlete's life. Please share this episode with your friends or caretakers of athletes who would like this episode as we start playing out in the hot summer heat over the next few weeks. You can be sure never to miss an episode by subscribing to the Heads and Tails podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The more subscribers and reviews we get, the more lives we can potentially save. Also, the Heads and Tails podcast is brought to you by you. Please go over to the newly added shop page at headsandtails.org backslash shop to grab yourself some gear. Next, we hear from Gavin Class himself, and he talks about his long road to recovery, only to be told he can never play the sport he loves again. So let's start off by just talking about what sports you played growing up. So up until high school, I played football, lacrosse, and basketball. And then when I got to high school, I just stuck with football and lacrosse. Okay. Um, are you from Maryland because you went to Towson, or is that a safe assumption, or where are you from? Yes, sir. I'm from uh, from Hereford, Maryland. Okay, cool. Um, yep. So, yeah, lacrosse is big down there. Oh, um, yeah. You got a, a dog friend? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a new puppy. All right, cool. Um, yep. So what's, uh, what injuries did you suffer throughout your career? Um, I, you know, I suffered a concussion in – Rec football, concussion in high school, 
So, uh, uh, so yeah, like maybe you've experienced a bunch of concussions. So like, did you tell someone when, you know, what kind of symptoms did you have and how, how are those concussions managed? I'm just curious. Well, I know when I had in rec football, like it was directly from a blow and pretty sure I went to the hospital that night. And when I was in high school, it was one of those things where I just, you know, wasn't feeling right after practice. And, um, you know, I can't really remember, you know, it was a typical just sit out for two weeks and, you know, can you turn your head left without, you know, follow the fingers without your so, eyes lagging behind. Yeah, so your symptoms kind of went away before you went back out there? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so that's that's the, the, the right way to do it instead of doing what I did. Um, all right, so any any other injuries or was, was pretty much just concussions until you had um, the, the heat stroke? I mean, I, I, I've always had terrible ankles. I've break I've broke both of my ankles and sprained both of them multiple times. Oh. And I've I've broken my hand playing football and um but no other like big injuries. Yeah, you're I could tell you're like you're a big dude. You're an offensive lineman, right? Oh yeah. So like what what was some of your stats? Like how tall are you? How how much you weighing? Like what kind of weights were you throwing around? Well, back um right before I had my heat stroke, well I'm, I still I'm six four. I was three oh five. I put up four forty on the bench and five twenty five on the squat. So yeah, that's some pretty crazy numbers. Um, yeah. so can you talk about your decision to attend Towson and, and play yeah, football? So, so I was at University of Rochester D three school. Okay. And I was there for two years, and I, you know, I was just um, when I was there, I was like, this is not the level of competition I'm gonna be playing at. You know, I, I want to be doing the best I can and playing in the best best football I can. Right. And so then that's when I. I was actually looking to transfer out after my freshman year, then just never uh, was able to happen until after my sophomore year, and I finally got to Towson and got into Towson. All right. Um, did you have to like sit out a year because you you changed uh, divisions or? Yes. So I had to sit out my first year at Towson, which was 2012. I had a red shirt. All right. Um, all right, so can you tell us kind of what led up to your exertional heat stroke? Um, honestly, it was a, a real sudden injury. So, you know, you know, we had a way in and way out of every single practice. And because of loss was, of sweat, right? Right. And so it was probably about the 10th day. Of, it was 10th day of camp. And uh, we had – they had given us – uh, sweat test during the summertime with little patches that measured uh, it measured how much salt we lost and we also they also tracked our water intake and our weight before and after practice and and so through weighing in and weighing out they were able to tell us like what type of Gatorade we needed to consume like what concentration of salt and how much of it and, uh, you know, during camp, I was doing so well, keeping my, my body weight at where it was. And it, the doctors just said it was probably just like, it's kind of like the unperfect storm of things that caused my heat stroke. They said, I, they think I might have been sick and like fighting through like a fever. And 
you know, my body's temperature was already a little elevated, then plus the heat. Right, yeah, that that was in uh, training camp, right? Correct. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, perfect storm there. Um, So do you remember anything about that practice, or was it, yeah, it was a practice, right, not a scrimmage? Right, it was was, uh, the end of a tour day, and... It was, we, were, we were conditioning at the end. I, I don't remember. That's the only memory loss I have. I don't remember that entire day. So everything I know is, is what I've heard from my friends and my coaches. Yeah, being retold. So can you talk about kind of some of the stuff that they told you? So actually my roommate, my roommate, one of my best friends, was right next to me conditioning. And he said I was just in my stance. And when he blew the whistle, I just didn't get out. I just literally – was in my stance, and then I fell over two seconds later. And then, what what was the like the treatment afterwards? Like, uh, did the athletic trainers kind of attend you right away, or right? So yeah, the trainers, you know, rushed over to me, and uh, I know my coaches. They ran over and uh, and all of them combined picked me up, and we had ice ice tubs on the field, so. Um, after practice, it was mandatory to get in the ice bath. Right. And so we already had the ice baths on the field. So they all rushed me over there and stuck me in there for, I think, about 10 minutes before the ambulance got there. And we we found out through, found out through working with Corey Stringer that uh, the protocol is 15 minutes, 20. 20 it's 20 minutes. And... They said they did the right thing, and ultimately that was probably one of the things that saved my life was sticking me in the ice bath right after I collapsed. Right, but you're saying that you should have been in there longer. They should have kept me in there for 10 more minutes and had the the um, ambulance or EMS team uh, wait. Right. Need to get um, out. Yeah, so that's a, a teaching point for – if there's any coaches or parents or athletes listening to, to this podcast. Um, so what was your prognosis? I know you had like a, it was real serious. Um, I think you were pretty close to not even pulling through. So, you know, what were the doctors saying when you got to the hospital? Well, of course this is, you know, from what. Yeah. People parents, are telling you. Yeah. yeah. I think I had about a 25% chance of making it. Um, my mom is shaking her head and thinks it's lower than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's just like 10 or 15 it was. And um, my – so when I got to the hospital after being cooled down for 10 minutes, I was 108 because they, they didn't take my temperature right there on the field, and they estimated it was probably about 111. Damn. that's Yeah, that's ridiculously high. Mm-hmm. So, when did your organs start failing? I know you needed a, a liver transplant. So, you, can you talk about the decision to do that and kind of what obstacles came about after because of the the transplant? Okay, so my liver and kidney both started failing as a result of the heat stroke. So, they had me on kidney dialysis, and after. A couple of days, my kidneys, you know, they still, they still weren't working fully, but they were coming back enough to where the doctors, you know, decided I needed a kidney transplant. But my liver still, still wasn't working up to par, wasn't working at all. And they actually were, University of Maryland was one of the first hospitals to use, it's called a Mars machine. And it's a, it's a, 
it's a liver di- dialysis system. Okay. And it's, it's only meant for like real short term use. And so I was, I was on it for a couple of days and I finally had, so I had the heat stroke on Monday on that, that Wednesday, they finally decided I need to have a liver transplant. And I was on the liver transplant list for about 12 hours, which is completely unheard of. Yeah, so you got real lucky, and, right? Oh, I got extremely lucky. Yep. Yeah, and then on or like real like one o'clock Thursday morning is when I received the liver transplant. All right. That was that was August sixteenth. Wow, so you, you went through a lot in a, a short period of time and you definitely overcame a lot of odds and and, and beat the odds, I mean. Um, can you talk about what your recovery was like after this point? Like how long did it take you to get back to start working out? Cause I mean, you were a a physical specimen, you know, before you, you had the heat stroke. So, you know, how long did it take to get, to get back there? So during all, all my surgery and process and stuff, they had completely removed my abdominal wall. I had no abdominal muscles, all my other muscles had been eaten away from VRE, which is an infection I got while I was in the hospital. Damn, so it wasn't even just like your organs failing, you are starting to get an infection too, damn. Yep, so I got an infection. I left the hospital around, I lost 90 pounds in the hospital, so what, 215? Damn, that's like how much I weigh now, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I lost all that weight in the hospital, which, you know, all my muscle weight, so I, I had to come back and, you know, basically start over because even when I lost my stomach muscles and everything in the hospital, I, I had to, you know, I had to relearn how to, how to walk, talk. Um, my voice was completely shot. I, you know, it still isn't a hundred percent to like where it was before, but it's about, it's about 95%. So I still have a couple stutters and here and there and, my voice was like gone. My eyesight had gotten fifty times worse. I'd come legally blind. Um, I wasn't able to, you know, I was barely able to get out of the hospital bed. I started finally, you know, I worked my way from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane. I did that. Uh, probably, I worked out of the walker probably by November, December of two thousand thirteen. And then I finally started to be able to do a light jog probably January, February of 2014. And, you know, I started doing a little, I guess, close to full speed workouts by that summer of 2014. And by the fall of 2014, I still... I had failed the first heat test I had with Corey Stern that August. And then I was able, I was cleared to lift with the football team August, I mean, October of 2014. So I started resuming workouts with the team. And then by that, by that winter, I was training full speed and my, I had gotten my weight back up to around 275. And I was training full speed again to play spring football in 2015. Wow, so you you were putting in a lot of work and you were making some good progress, but you just had to be patient along the way. 
Correct. Um, it, it sounds like. So, so I mean, after going through what you went through, you know, almost dying and losing 90 pounds. Oh, you know, I did. Losing, I did, what? I did die in the hospital. I flatlined, um, I think it was Tuesday night, Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, I flatlined when I got my dad just said I flatlined when I got to Maryland. And I, so that was two, two, yeah, Tuesday. So, yeah, but that's, that's kind of like my whole like, motto thing now is you'll, you'll live twice. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> that, that's, it's crazy that you went through that. But yeah. you, after, after going through all this, you still wanted to, to play football again. So what was it about football that, that made you want to go back out there after all that you've been through? And, if, I mean, if you weren't playing football that day, you probably wouldn't have been in that position. It wasn't like why you know why would I go back to the sport that did something like this to me? It was it was it was just like anything. Like I was you know was still trying to do my best. I wanted to you know I viewed it as any other injury I had in my football life. You know you kept playing football with concussion. Like I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna get better from this injury and I'm gonna continue playing again. Right. Like I'm not supposed to stop playing football. Right, and I think in in just from like an outsider's view on on your story, it almost seems like having football as kind of like the end goal probably helped you a little bit through your recovery. You know, like uh, with with that, you know, waking up every day, you know, and and training and doing all your rehab with the end goal of you know trying to get back on the field again. Like if you didn't have that goal, you know, it might not have been as it might have been a little hard getting getting through those those you know those sessions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people that have transplants now, and you know they don't have quite the quite the outcome post transplant that that you of, had of getting of getting healthy again. And I think it was, you know, that's the sole reason why I'm doing so well today is because my goal was just, you know, to get back and fight in shape. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that you you got yourself back there. Can you talk about the transition to life after sports? Like I know through various, you know, legal issues that, you know, you couldn't uh, – they wouldn't let you back to, to Towson to play again. So, you know, that's something that I struggle with a lot, and I know a lot of athletes do, you know, when they when their sport's taken away from them. You know, it's a, a hard time to kind of transition to something else. So can you talk about kind of those mental and emotional battles that you, you might have faced after, you know, being told that you can't play? Right, so I, so July is the first time I got July 2015. I was finally cleared by the court to play, and then it's it started a snowball effect of appeals and de- denials from the court system in Towson, and so by the time I think it was September rolled around, I had we had come to a decision. It was. Me and my parents were talking. We came to the decision. It was like, well, if this comes back negative, we're just gonna, we're just gonna, you know, move on yeah, to the next. It is uh, what it is. I guess next yeah. phase of my life, and you know, I knew that if uh, if it came back negative, that or I got denied again, it was part of God's plan. If he if he wanted me to play, he would have cleared me. And if uh, he didn't want me to play, I wouldn't be cleared. And, that's something I realized, and then I just decided to pursue my 
next passion and career, which was strength and conditioning. Yeah, something that you were awesome at for sure, and I'm sure you still are. Yep. Um, so I think I saw on your Instagram somewhere that you were doing a competition for people with uh, transplants or like a transplant games or something. Can you talk about, you know, your 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 newfound outlet? Yeah, so actually when I was in the hospital, I kind of thought of Remember the Titans when uh, Gary Bertier he uh yeah get, he, goes in the hospital yep and then he competed in the paralympics following his accident yeah and so Bertier's mama yeah. yep <laughs> and uh and I, I honestly i looked it up and i was like first thing i typed in was transplant transplant olympics and first thing that came up came up was the transplant games of america and i was just finally I just finished up school and, you know, had stopped playing football. And, you know, this past January, I had talked to Team Maryland and got on Team Maryland and was able to compete in my first transplant games. I'm sure they took one look at you and they were like, thank God we got this guy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was a pretty awesome experience. It, I mean, it wasn't even – I mean, there, there was good competition out there, but it wasn't even – the competition that like made the experience so awesome it was you know just learning about everyone else that's had organ transplants and all the donor donor families and just learning cuz i i never experienced the you know the before side of transplants like a lot most of these people had had were sick in the hospital for a while or were dealing with some sort of sickness before they had their transplant right and this is somewhere where I got to learn the other half of the story and really learn how great and awesome organization is and how it saves so many lives and just hearing stories of you know donor families and you know of the people they've lost and how their loved one has helped save another person's life is just incredible. Awesome. So anyone listening to this that doesn't have organ donor on their license, go go change that because you could. Uh... Make a difference in someone's life for sure. That's exactly right. All right. So, what has been your favorite or your most memorable kind of experience with working with or, or meeting other athletes or even people who have uh, transplants? Is there anything in particular? Well, so when I was at the transplant games, there was this 13 year old girl who had a transplant when she was only a couple months old. And this girl, she uh, she was kicking everybody's butt in her in her age group and just absolutely just killing it. And, and this this girl, she, I was because we play volleyball is isn't age groups are based on gender, so you play everybody. And we were we were playing this girl in volleyball. She was just absolutely killing us, and she's thirteen years old, and you know some. Uh, transplants and medications affect people's growth when they're they're little and they have to grow up with it and so this girl she she looked a little younger than 13 and just seen her kick everybody's butt and doing so well and she on the track at track and field she was just so fast it's just incredible to see cool you know well, what uh what can be done yeah, what could still be done despite yep. yeah, that obstacle. So yep. what obstacles do you still face today because of uh, your your exertional heat stroke? So 
Um, the only physical limitations I have aren't any. I just I actually play in a summer lacrosse uh, league with a couple of my buddies, and I actually have this pad that was made for me for when I was trying to come back from football. And I just have to wear this pad when I play lacrosse that just protects my liver from anything. It's not – it's just protecting from any direct blows. It's not – Right. You know, it's not like the end all that I got mm, – like absolutely it, have to be wearing it, but it's just yeah. safety measures because I've definitely built – because that time we built it in my ab wall, it hadn't completely built back yet. Right. So, but now my ab walls um, come back a lot more and a lot more protective of my liver. Awesome. Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat. I don't really have too many physical limitations. I pretty much just can't get hit in the head. So, I just make sure I wear a helmet if I ride my bike or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, what advice do you have for athletes uh, to avoid exertional heat stroke? Anything? Shoot, uh, I mean, definitely stay hydrated. But you know, like my incident, it could literally could happen to any other teammate on the field on my field that day. Right, and like you were saying, you might have been sick or something. So right, if you're I feeling mean, a little under the weather, make sure you say something. I guess. Yeah, but it's one of those things. You know, I was competing for a starting spot, and if I feel a little under the weather, you know. I'm sure you wouldn't you wouldn't step out of plan either. No, yeah, exactly right. And I mean, I think that's a huge issue in sports today. And I talk about it all the time on the podcast because yeah, you're you're expendable. You know, you're trying to fight it for a spot or keep a spot. And if you sit out, you never know when the next time you're going to get back in there is. Exactly. Especially at a Division One football level like you were playing at. Um, so yeah, it's a, a tough dilemma that hopefully we could have a solution some someday. Yep. All right, I'm about to wrap up the interview. I appreciate your time. So this one is kind of a out of the ordinary question, I guess. But another podcast I listen to the the guy Lewis Howes. He always asks this, and I like it. Um, if you had to tattoo one word or phrase on your forehead, you had to look <laughs> in at the mirror um, every single day. What would it be? Uh, determination. Uh, absolutely. That that word is something that stuck with me and. Um, I pit during camp. I I had picked our offensive line coach went around the room and um asked every single offensive lineman, you know what he what offensive lineman had to possess to have to be successful. And the word I picked was determination. Awesome. And that's and that's exactly the word I would have tattooed on my forehead for the rest of life because you just got to be determined and. You know, it'll get you through anything and, you know, always be looking forward. Awesome. I, I like it. It's perfect for your story. Yeah. Um, then lastly, uh, what's your, your personal definition of perseverance? You could use a, a football analogy if, if that uh, if that's if that's easier. Well, honestly, my favorite one actually comes from Walter Payton where he says, never die easy. And I actually have that. Uh, tattooed on my arm now awesome and it's you know in his quote it's never die easy never run out of bounds and make it easy on a linebacker always uh fight your hardest to stay in bounds and same thing in life always fight your hardest for your life and never die easy never die without a fight gavin i love that dude that's that's so cool that's one of my favorite answers to that question i've ever gotten (laughs) that was cool man um well i really appreciate your time 
and I continue, you know, inspiring people out there. And I, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you turned out the, the way that you did. And um, I'll, I'll be, I'll be in touch, and I'll, I'll send you this, this podcast episode that's probably going to go up this weekend. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks um, for having me on. Oh, yeah, no problem, man.